to the Data Skeptic bonus feed, where we release extended content on data science, statistics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. This episode features the full interview with Ernie Tedeschke. Parts of this interview were included in the recent Data Skeptic episode, Opinion Polling for Presidential Elections. Ernie played a prominent role in that episode because of his work using the raw data from the LA Times USC poll, which he chose to reweigh differently than the USC team did. Here, we're featuring the complete interview for those of you interested in a thorough discussion of his methods and the poll itself. Thanks to Christine Zhang for conducting the interview. So, I wanted to talk to you mainly about your reweighting of the USC LA Times poll. Yeah. This was really interesting. What motivated you to undertake this exercise? My background is not in polling. My background, I'm an economist in the private sector, and I do several different things. One of the things that I do is labor economics. So I work a lot with census data, in particular, one survey called the current population survey, which is the monthly survey that the government conducts that ultimately leads to the unemployment number and labor force participation and other labor market metrics that we see come out. You know, if you see the news reports on the first Friday of every month, you'll see the quote unquote jobs number. Part of that report comes from the current population survey. Weighting in that survey is extremely important because what you're doing is you're trying to get a snapshot of the U.S. population, in particular the adult population, every month. And in order to do that, you have to accurately weight the responses um, to the survey so that they reflect the American population at large. In other words, you're trying to take a survey of about 175,000 respondents every month and use that to say something about an adult population of more than 250 million. So obviously how you weight each individual in that survey is very important. As a politically engaged American, I was following the election very closely and following the polling closely. Uh, As I said, I'm not a pollster, but I was familiar with the LA Times USC poll. I followed it four years ago when it was managed by the Rand Corporation and uh, during the Obama-Romney contest. We, we can talk about this in a little bit. There are things I really like about the poll, and that's why I was highly anticipating following it in this election cycle. And so then when USC took it over and it was funded by the LA Times, I started looking at it again. And I think that like a lot of people, I noticed that it was out of the mainstream of the whole swath of polls that were out there. A lot of people, I think, attributed that to political bias on the part of the LA Times USC poll. I knew that the methodology was pretty sound and serious back when it was ran. I, I knew the reputation of USC and that, you know, they're extremely serious and not partisan. So I figured that couldn't be the answer. Why is this poll so different from all the other polls that were generally showing Hillary Clinton leading by, depending on where in the political cycle, between two and 10 points, whereas the LA Times-USC poll pretty consistently had Donald Trump winning the popular vote. Did your Google site that has the reweights and um, all of your analysis, did that come out before or after Nate Cohn's piece about the 19-year-old person skewing poll averages? So that came out around the same time, Nate and I had been emailing one another, I think on that topic. 
and I think, and I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact sequence of events. My recollection is that it started out as like a Twitter conversation. So, so, so I had been talking about sort of beginning to get into the LA Times USC poll. Somebody had notified me like in a Twitter conversation, oh, there, there's this like one 19 year old African American that's skewing the poll in, in Texas or in Illinois, and that's throwing everything off. And I got sort of into a conversation with this individual about, you know, digging into the data and ultimately found that there were two overweighted African-American individuals in the LA Times USC poll, one of whom was leaning toward Trump and one of whom was leaning toward Clinton. And so I responded to this person, well, you know, that's a valid issue. You have to worry about waiting. On the other hand, there are these two individuals in the poll and they seem to be counteracting one another. So I'm not sure that that can really explain the systemic difference in the LA, LA Times USC poll. And I think that either I had forwarded that conversation to Nate or Nate had seen the conversation and I think and that formed the basis of Nate's piece. And I think very shortly thereafter, I posted my first sort of deep dive into the waiting issue with LA Times and how to correct for it. I mean, I should say that I'm a fan of the LA Times USC poll. I was before even I went into this analysis. And in fact, being a fanboy of the poll, I think is what really, (laughs) I like having raw data. I particularly like a type of data called longitudinal data. Longitudinal data is just a fancy word for when you're able to match the same people across months. Normally when polls are conducted or surveys are conducted, they survey one population in one month or in one session, and then it's a completely different set of people in another month. But in certain polls, like the LA Times USC poll, what they'll do is they will track the same people over time. And what's really interesting about that is that you can see how people's opinions change over time. You know, what makes them go from Trump to Clinton or back or to someone else, their self-expressed likelihood of of voting. It's a lot of data that you don't get from traditional polls. I should say too that the other thing to the LA Times USC polls great credit is that they released their data to the public on a regular schedule. The raw data, the micro data as we call it. And that's something that most polls won't do. Most polls will just give you, you know, a series of summary tables called crosstabs that will, with a lot of detail, they'll sort of give you the underlying results of the poll, but they won't let you go into the actual underlying responses of each individual and be able to download them in an accessible fashion in a way that's easily analyzed and and manipulable and uh, so that you're able to run different statistical tests on it. Uh, LA Times USC does that. And this analysis that I did wouldn't have been possible if LA Times USC had just acted like most other polls. And then the third thing I'll say about LA Times USC is they didn't just ask well, who are you voting for? You voting for Trump? You voting for Clinton? You voting for someone else? They allowed people to express their opinions on a spectrum from zero to one, which I think is much more realistic. You know, most voters were undecided in the sense that they hadn't totally made up their minds, but they were probably leaning one way or the other throughout the cycle. And LA Times USC allowed them to express that in the poll. They could say, you know, right now I'm 
70% for Clinton, but I'm 30% for Trump, or I'm, you know, 40% for Clinton, I'm 40% for Trump, and I'm 20% for somebody else. And it also asked them on a spectrum, what's the likelihood that you're going to vote on election day? Now, there are all sorts of issues of bias around that question, because you always say you're going to vote. And oftentimes, for whatever reason, you don't end up voting. We feel like we should be voting, right? And so you're more likely to tell a survey questioner that you are going to vote. But at least, you know, that that provided a little bit of honesty so that people could say, I'm 80% likely to vote come November, or I'm 100% likely to vote. Oh, I actually already voted. I voted early. So I'm at 100% right now. That was nice because it really allowed sort of a fine-tuned, detailed analysis of what was going on in the election. So what was the most interesting thing that you found from your results? So what the LA Times USC poll did was, I mentioned that they surveyed the same people over the course of the entire survey. With, there were a couple of people that came in later and there were a couple of respondents who seemed to have dropped out. They stopped responding to the questions. But for the most part, it was the same people over the entire cycle. So you have this survey of roughly 3,000 people that you continuously survey, and then you have to figure out how to weight them. What LA Times USC decided to do was in many cases very straightforward. They looked at census data and they said, okay, we're going to weight based on age, sex, race. In other words, we're going to come up with weights so that the proportions of an African-American 30-year-old who's married in this survey matches the same proportion of all African-American 30-year-olds who are married in the entire American population as well, or the entire adult population. That's very straightforward. And you know you can quibble a little bit with certain things about how that's done, but that's a very non-controversial, I think, straightforward way of doing it. The one extra thing they did, though, was they waited based on self-responded vote back in 2012. In other words, they asked everybody in their survey, how did you vote in 2012? Did you vote for Obama? Did you vote for Romney? Or did you vote for someone else? Or did you not vote at all? We know, obviously, the results of the 2012 election. We have actual data on that. So they constrained the way that they weighted their sample so that it matched the actual voting results in 2012. And this was the thing that raised the red flag for me as I was digging into the methodology, because there's a well-known phenomenon in survey response called winner bias, um, is the easiest way to describe it, either because you forget or because you want to make it seem like you were on the winning side. You tell a respondent that you ended up going with the winner in the last election, even if you didn't actually vote for, in this case, President Obama in 2012. What I suspected that meant is that there were more people in the L.A. Times USC poll who said that they voted for President Obama than actually really had in 2012. And then what you're doing is you're taking all these people who say that they voted for President Obama, even though some of them probably voted for Governor Romney at the time. And then you're constraining them down. You're, you're, you're reweighting them so that you're compressing them to equal the actual vote proportion that President Obama got in 2012. That creates a bias against people who might in actuality have voted for President Obama. And it creates a bias in favor of people who voted for Governor Romney at the time, because those actual Governor Romney voters are represented both in the self-responded Obama voters in the survey 
and they're represented in the self-responded Romney voters. So the way that I dealt with that was I started from square one. I said, all right, let's get rid of the weights that the LA Times USC poll is using in their official results. Let's strip those out and let's just make new weights. We'll use the current population survey, which you'll recall I said is the survey that the government puts out that, among other things, produces the unemployment rate. But it also has a richer way of demographic information and some economic information in it that we can use to make weights. We'll see what's available in the L.A. Times USC poll and we'll just build new weights sort of in the same vein that the L.A. Times USC poll did itself. But we won't include self-reported 2012 vote as one of the metrics. I included a lot of the same metrics. I included race, age, the usual suspects, you know, the the normal ones. The other thing I'll mention, too, is that this is a little bit more esoteric, but it's important. So they had used a measure of income. The L.A. Times USC poll had asked people in their survey, what's your household income? And then they had used the current population survey of May 2016 to weight people in part based on that income question, because there's a question in the current population survey about your household income. That question in the current population survey is notoriously unreliable. Far from everybody answers it. It's heavily seasonal. It depends on when during the year you ask it. When you look at sort of the distribution of that question in the current population survey, it doesn't match at all what we know to be much more reliable data that's conducted on an annual basis. So I used for the income question, I used a different survey, the American Community Survey, which has a much larger sample size, two and a half million. It's conducted on an annual basis. So it wasn't quite as timely as what LA Times USC had used for their poll, but very rich, very reliable data. It's, you know, it's where we get the official poverty number from. It's where we get the official household income number from. Generally thought to be a much better source of this income data than the monthly current population survey. So I use that for that specific question and I reweighted on that. Why do you think they use the current population survey instead of the American Community Survey? When it comes to demography, like age, sex, race, et cetera, the current population survey is generally very timely and very good because actually the weights that they use are based on the American Community Survey and on census estimates. That's because they can't afford to have a representative sample of the population where they're re-estimating all of these demographics every single month. What they do in the current population survey is they just use the estimates from the latest census data as their assumption when they create the official government CPS weights. So you, so using basic demography like that from the current population survey should be fine and shouldn't bias the results one way or the other. It was those two things. It was voting recollection from 2012 and this income question that raised red flags to me. Once I had reweighted, based on everything that I talked about before, the results of the LA Times USC survey basically almost exactly matched the polling averages that you saw on a site like, say, realclearpolitics.com. And all Real Clear Politics does, in this case, it took the most prominent presidential polls and it just did an average of them over time. USC LA Times, once I had reweighted it, almost exactly matched that average. It went from being an outlier to being sort of right in the middle of the consensus distribution. What that told me was you know, not that there was anything bad or wrong about LA Times USC, 
But it, it, it that seemed to point in the direction that you know this one of these two things, either this income question or more likely this recollection bias from the 2012 election was skewing the results in such a way that it made Trump seem to be running away with the popular vote. And at the end of the day, when November came, obviously Trump won the Electoral College, but I think my final re-weighted estimate of LA Times USC was a Hillary win by 1.9% in the popular vote. And I think at the end of the day, her win was a margin of around 2%, maybe just over 2%. The raw data in LA Times USC seemed to be very good, very representative on a national level. It was just a matter of weighting it correctly. I had heard a lot about the 2012 vote thing, but I didn't I didn't hear much about the income question. And I think that really speaks to the different sources of data, right? Because mm -hmm. In addition to, and I think this is something that a lot of people don't realize, but in addition to making sure that you're surveying your sample correctly and using the right polling methods, the other thing that all of these estimates always include is an implicit assumption of what the American electorate looks like. Right. And that's where demography really makes a difference. And, and I'll say, too, that one of the nice things about the LA Times USC poll you remember I said that they asked you the question of how likely it was that you would vote come November. What's nice about that is that what many polls do is they have to explicitly model, as you said, who's likely to show up on election day. And they have to make a lot of exogenous assumptions in their model about how that will work. That will be based on historical experience. That will be based on pollster judgment. What the LA Times USC poll did was they just took the response as is. Whatever the respondent to the survey said was their likelihood of voting on election day, that was the sort of additional weight that LA Times USC used in projecting turnout on election day. And by the way, when I reweighted the LA Times USC, I, I made that same assumption. Just, just whatever self-responded likelihood of showing up was, was um, the, the number that I used. And I like that because it's, it's well-motivated. It allows the individual survey respondent control over how they're being weighted based on their actual response and their actual estimation. And, you know, obviously you always want to kick the tires on any of these assumptions over time. And that is no exception. You would want to compare sort of the performance of self-response voter turnout versus, you know, model-based voter turnouts. But, you know, I think that my exercise showed at least that if you got the weighting right, self-response voter turnout seem to perform just fine, uh, at least in terms of the national popular vote. So you say that you like this fact that the LA Times USC survey had asked this question in, in that spectrum way. Yeah. In your experience, do other surveys just not, do they not ask this question or do they ask it in a different way or, or what? In my experience, and again, I, I'll emphasize that I'm not a polling expert, so I will not say that no poll does this. And my experience is that most other polls will just ask a binary question. You know, if the election were held today, who would you vote for? There are advantages to that question, too, because it forces you to make a choice. There's an argument from some that by given survey respondents, the ability to answer a question with a probability or a percentage rather than just making a choice is not a realistic. When you go into the polling booth, they don't ask you assign some percentage to this candidate and assign some, you know, you have to vote. You have <laughs> right. To vote. And, and, and this was one of the so, sort of sub questions that I wanted to explore with the LA Times USC poll. Like if it wasn't just the income question or the 2012 vote recollection question, 
Could it have been one of these other unique facets of LA Times, USC that led to these out of consensus results. And again, since I was able just with the waiting procedure to bring LA Times USC in line with consensus, that led me to think that no, like actually these other sort of unique features of LA Times USC are a wash in terms of bias. They don't they don't seem to bias the poll one way or the other. It came out again very much in line with consensus once you've adjusted for weighting. So if you're not changing the top line result from this, then it's great for the researcher who's able to dig into the microdata and do things like, I look on Twitter, for example, like how did the probability of voting for Hillary Clinton change after the Comey letter came out in the last week or so of the campaign? How did probability of voting for Donald Trump change after the allegations on Access Hollywood came out? LA Times USC poll allows you to very easily do experiments like that, A, because it's longitudinal and tracks the same people over time, but B, because it allows people, even if people you know, still support one candidate much more over the other, it allows them to, oh, okay, well, maybe I'm not uh, Secretary Clinton. Maybe now I'm only 65% in favor of her, right? And, and you can see those minute changes over time in the data. On the discussion of the weighting, you talk about doing interactions between different demographic categories. So you have like age, sex, race, etc., the, the usual suspects, as, as I like to call them. And those might be broad categories. But then what makes it statistically even more difficult is when you start doing interactions between those. Yeah, you want your survey to match the overall population. And you want it to match the overall population, as you said, along several different dimensions, um, whatever dimensions you might think are the most relevant for the question that you're looking at. We can think of a lot of different relevant dimensions that would come up. The problem, as you hinted at, is that the more dimensions you add, the likelier it is that you're going to end up with some combination of those dimensions that ends up with just nobody in a single month. Let me give you an example. If I were looking at, say... Hispanic, 62-year-old men who are divorced and make an income of less than $50,000. That's a hyper-specific combination of dimensions. And I could end up with just nobody, particularly if I'm looking at the current population survey, which, as I said, has a monthly sample of about 175,000 individuals. Now, that sounds like a really big number. For most purposes, that would be a wonderful sample size. But for estimating the American population of more than 300 million people, more than 250 million adults, that's actually kind of a small sample. You can very quickly come to combinations of dimensions that are relevant for your research that don't give you an accurate read on the actual proportion in the overall population. So there are a couple of different ways to deal with that. One is you base your weights off of a larger, broader sample. In this case, we could have used the American Community Survey, the ACS, which is an annual data set. 2.5 million sample instead of 175,000, much less likely that we're going to end up with what statisticians call cells, that is, interactions of all the different dimensions that you're interested in, of zero. So that's one way of doing it. Now, the downside of that is that you lose the timeliness of the monthly data from the current population survey. When I started this, by the way, 
the latest American Community Survey was from calendar year 2015. Just ca- it just covered all of that. When I originally did this, I did like an ACS only version, and then I did a version with the current population survey because I wanted to make sure that you know much more recent data wasn't going to dramatically change the results. And then like halfway, I, I think it was in September, the data on the 2016 ACS was released by the Census Bureau. That relieved a lot of my sort of heartache of doing it that way. So one way of solving this problem is just to get a larger, broader data set. The solution that I went with is something called an iterative reweight. And so that is, rather than trying to find the weights associated with every single hyper-specific combination of dimensions imaginable, I like to think of it as like a sculptor with clay. You cycle through a lot of different reweights that are just based on a single dimension. And if you do it enough times over every single dimension, just like you have a piece of pottery on a turntable, you'll eventually get the shape that accurately reflects the population as a whole. In practical terms, what that means is, okay, you start out with sex. And so you have, let's say, 50% men, 50% women. So you make sure that your sample is weighted to be 50% men and 50% women. Then you move on to race as a separate reweight and you do all of the different racial proportions that you have. Then you do income. I, I forget exactly which order I did it in, but actually as long as you do it enough times, it shouldn't matter. And then you do education, for example. Rather than doing everything all at once, You do it one at a time over and over again, making sure that and and sort of fitting all the proportions in. And then over time, if you do it enough times, what you end up with is something that is reflective of the overall population. Now, we have algorithms that will do this automatically. And in fact, there I think that the L.A. Times USC poll used a particular algorithm that's available for statistical software to come up with their weights, their original weights. To be honest, I want to do it the old fashioned iterative way just so I could sort of say to myself, I can code this, I understand how it's working, just to go through the motions of sort of learning the computational process behind it. This was just as much a learning experience for me as it was sort of an analytical experience for me. So you have the basic categories and you start with like the first one, say sex, men and women. Then you weight your data to reflect the population of men and women, right? Which is 50-50. Yes, right. My initial weight for every single person was some constant number, let's say 10,000 for each survey respondent. And when you're starting out, you have no idea how that sort of pans out in terms of the final weights. So, but you, you pick a number and then you say, okay, step one, let's start with the easiest category, gender. And let's assume that it's 50-50. Then what you're doing is you're taking that weight of 10,000 that you initially assigned and you are incrementally changing it so that the weighted sum total of everyone in your survey ends up being 50% male, 50% female. If your survey started out as having more men than women, that would mean that after that first stage, the weight on the men in your survey would be less than 10,000, right? Because it's now, it, it's, it has oh, to underweight yeah. sample, right, of men in order to get the final weighted total to be 50% of the, of the overall total. So let's say that you ended up with men are now weighted at 9,000, women are, at, are weighted at 11,000 right. each. Right. Let's say that the next one is education. And so then you say, okay, I need to have 30% with a bachelor's degree or greater. I need to have, I don't know, 30% with some college. I need to have 40% with a high school degree or less. And so 
you're starting out with, let's say, a 9,000 weight on men, an 11,000 weight on women, whatever the results of that first stage were. And then you're doing the same thing with education and you're changing that first stage reweight with a second stage that's based on education. And you're making sure that your weighted sample has the correct educational proportion. And then you move on to the next category. You move on to, let's say, race and ethnicity, and you reweight based on that. And then you go through all the dimensions. Now, when you've gone through once, there's no guarantee that going through one cycle of the dimensions is enough to get all of the weights correct. You have to start over and start from square one right back with sex again and then work your way down again. But what's happening is every single cycle that you do this, the final weights are gradually whittling down to the correct weight, the weight that accurately reflects the overall population for each individual person in that survey over every dimension. Sometimes it takes as few as like five complete cycles of reweighting through these dimensions. I think I did it in the code like 50 times or so just to be absolutely sure. But like on the 50th time, there was virtually no change at every single cycle because it had reached an equilibrium where every single person was weighted appropriately. After going through all those cycles and then you look at your weighted data, you will find that the weighted proportions of sex will be 50% each. You'll find that the weighted proportions of education will be the same as the overall population. Every single dimension will be exactly at or extremely close to the target weights that you put into it. That's just a function of the fact that you're repeating this exercise so many different times and it just it whittles down to the right weight. Uh huh. And by the quote unquote right weight, what you mean is the weights such that when you take the aggregate data, they reflect the voter population, I guess. That presupposes that you know what the population is in terms of those, all of those dimensions. Exactly. Gender, race, age, income, education, marital status, and state of residence, I think. Exactly. Do both the CPS and the ACS ask people whether or not they voted? Is everybody in there a voter or are they just an adult? It's the entire adult population. It's actually technically the entire population in both cases. The ACS measures what's called the resident population. The focus of the current population survey is what's what's called the non-institutional civilian population. Now, what what does that mean, civilian non-institutional population? Well, it means, number one, it's the adult population, which the Bureau of Labor Statistics for this purpose, defines as 16 or over. Civilian obviously means non-military, and that's that's a key thing that I'll return to in a a second. Non-institutional means that you're in a household that is not considered an institutional arrangement. So an institutional arrangement could be a college dorm, it could be a prison, it could be a monastery, old age housing. There are a lot of households that might be excluded from the civilian non-institutional population that are not captured by that monthly CPS data. At first, I was like, well, you know, I just I really want the timeliest data. So I want to focus on the current population survey. And then I was thinking about it. And of course, the most obvious thing that struck me is I'm excluding members of the active duty military by looking at the current population survey. That for one might create a bit of a bias, right? I'm not using this to determine the number of voters. I'm just using this to reweight the LA Times USC survey. Going to the American Community Survey, which gives you the entire US population, including, for example, 
active duty military. And I should say it has a better estimate of college students who are in dormitories. It's actually interesting. So in principle, they're not captured in the current population survey, but they actually generally are because the current population survey will go to their parents. And the question will be, name all the members of your household. If you have a child in college who's living in a dormitory, include that child as well. The current population survey actually does capture a lot of college students, but that's one of the metrics where you want to be like, all right, well, let's try a sensitivity analysis here with different data and make sure that the results are not dramatically different. And then think more critically about what the best sort of trade-off between getting an accurate count of the U.S. population and getting the timeliest data is. We want to include, you know, it's obvious that we want to make sure that we include active duty military in whatever sort of weighting sample that we use. Is it appropriate, for example, to use prisoners? You know, are prisoners likely to vote? That's not a question that is asked in the LA Times USC survey. And that was sort of like the next hurdle. And I was like, oh, okay, well, are all of the additional people that the ACS brings in really appropriate for the purposes of reweighting the LA Times USC poll? And I think ultimately what I did was I arrived at a compromise where I brought in the active duty military personnel and used them for calculating the adult population proportions for each of these different dimensions. But I did not bring in prisoners because I felt like that would skew the population proportions in a way that would not necessarily be reflective of either the L.A. Times USC poll, since I'm just based on reading their methodology. It didn't sound like they surveyed prisoners or just the American electorate as a whole, since prisoners are much less likely to vote because they're legally prevented from voting or just in terms of population behavior. That was another hurdle that we had to go through. Yeah, because I know that a lot of people say that, you know, the quote unquote best way and everybody obviously has their own opinions on this is to wait according to a, a something called a voter file. Yeah. So then you can you can see whether or not a person has actually voted in the past, yes. for example, or the voter file tells you who it, who actually the voters are. Yes. That makes a lot of sense to me. Obviously that wasn't available with the LA Times US poll. Right. Right. I read an article in the LA Times about what the poll had missed, why it was off on the popular vote. And the answer was because they had oversampled on rural voters and they didn't correct for urban rural. This is not necessarily a common weighting factor. It wasn't one of those things that you mentioned, for example. Correct. I could have arrived at the right, the quote unquote consensus answer and, and the right answer by accident. That's that's entirely possible here, right? By reweighting the poll and introducing these different dimensions, I could have introduced some dimensions that were skewing the poll one way and then some dimensions that were skewing the poll the other way. And I just happened to end up at this happy medium that over time was pretty close to, you know, a consensus average of the of the major polls out there and ended up being close to the actual result. That that's very possible. I haven't done a deep postmortem on that analysis answering that particular question, but that's one thing to keep in mind here is that the specific dimensions that I used are not necessarily the right dimensions. You know, to be perfectly honest, I ran this I, I was thinking that this was going to be a one-time thing and like, oh, like here's a cool question I I, I would like to be able able to answer based on the data. And after spending some time thinking about it and trying it out, I got this result that 
was close to the consensus of different polls out there. And honestly, I was like, oh, I, I wonder if this is going to maintain itself going forward over time. And I just kept updating that original methodology. So that's a long way of saying this is not by far, you know, I, I, there needs to be a much more robust postmortem on which metrics to use, how to weight them, what the best ex ante, that is beforehand, way of thinking about weighting these variables is. Anybody can go back after the fact, exactly the right weights that will, will get us the outcome. But the real challenge, and this is why I don't give LA Times USC a lot of flack for this, you know, they had a big challenge, which is they were starting this poll and they had to decide before they had even published a single result from their poll, how they were going to weight it. And they had to stick with that weighting throughout the entire sample. So, and that's, that's a challenge. That's tough to do. I don't want to minimize that. And in terms of urban versus rural, that could be the real salient metric here that if they had just directly accounted for from the beginning would have solved a lot of this out of consensus issue with the poll. And I may have just kind of gotten that right through a back door implicitly rather than explicitly by changing the, the income variable and by changing, you know, by taking out the 2012 vote weighting that may have effectively accounted for that urban rural divide without actually putting in a variable for urban versus rural. So uh, so I don't know. That's one of uh, that's one of the many interesting questions coming out of the poll. And again, what's great about the poll is that everybody can answer those questions or analyze those questions because all of the data is public. One thing I want to emphasize, too, is I made a decision early on when I was doing this that whatever updates I did to the analysis, I would publish no matter what they showed. Because I got, I got accused by people following me on Twitter of being in the tank for Clinton or being in the tank for Trump because I kept coming back to this poll or that, you know, because I kept showing adjustments that made Clinton winning. And I had made a conscious decision. Whatever the results showed, I would publish and sort of engage with the polling community and just make public whatever I did, because this really wasn't about, quote unquote, unskewing the polls to me. I hate that term. I know. And so somebody <laughs> tweeted me. He was like, this is actually the only honest unskewing I've ever seen. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I guess literally that's that's a good way of, de of describing it. But I'm an American who followed the election closely and I always vote. So I had strong opinions about the election. But my intention here was not to reassure or make a statement about my political priors. My question was this poll that I really like, it's out of consensus. I just, you know, I'd really like to know why that is. It would be interesting to know. That was the very narrow question. I wasn't even trying to get an accurate read of the final election number. You know, this was not about placing a bet in Vegas on how the election was going to turn out. This was almost like a purely data science question at the end, was figuring out what was going on with this particular poll that wasn't affecting all the other polls that were being brought out there. The only prior I brought into this was I know the reputation of the LA Times and the USC Institute that's running this. I'm highly doubtful that they are partisan hacks trying to show support for Trump. It's got to be something else that that could be really interesting. You could say, you know, something really interesting about the election. 